0: Well, technology can be gloriously frustrating, and so in what can only be described as another example of the frustrations that modern technology can bring us. The sermon that is titled Christ is King did not get recorded on the Sunday morning that I preached it, and so here I am in my office needing to re-record the lesson because it is part of a series, and, and uh, many people, I think, uh, desire this or want this, or at least that's what I would expect, and so um, here I go. The text that we were looking at is from Luke chapter 1, and in this series of messages that we were looking at leading up to Christmas Day, and, and the message that didn't get recorded was the message on Christmas morning, um, that series of messages had to deal with the mediatorial offices of Jesus Christ, and so we were looking at those mediatorial offices in connection with our sort of anticipation of the celebration of the birth of Christ and that great miracle of the Incarnation. And the question that we're looking at was, what is it that the Father intended to provide for us in the incarnation of the Divine Son? Uh, we have been given a mediator who is a prophet, a priest, and a king, and we've examined the teaching of Scripture that Jesus is our mediator, and he mediates to us, uh, between us, a fallen humanity, and a holy God. And this work of mediation is typically broken down into the three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus functions as a prophet who proclaimed the words and the works of God to men. Scripture teaches he was a prophet um, all throughout Scripture. Um, Jesus is not just a prophet, but he is far more than a prophet. He was, in fact, the perfect representative of God since he shared the very essence and nature of the Father. And he shared the nature and essence of God with the Father. So he is God in human flesh. And, and as that one who is the perfect representation of all that God is, He perfectly communicated to us the word and the will and the works of God. And that's what makes him a prophet. Second, we look to Jesus as our great high priest. He is a priest in that he represents the words and the works of man to God. He represents men before God. And his priesthood in Scripture is primarily seen in the sacrifice that he offered on behalf of his people. It was a once-for-all sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, complete, able to save to the uttermost all those who come to him by faith, And that one sacrifice did what none of the Old Testament sacrifices could do. It actually removed sin. The sacrifice that Christ offered perfected forever all those who are set apart by the Father for salvation. And then this third mediatorial role is the office of king. Christ is a king. And it's quite appropriate that we should say that one for Christmas Day since the declaration that Jesus Christ is a king is something that is mentioned of him in many of the prophecies connected to his birth. And further, when his birth was announced, the fact that he would fulfill that office of king uh, and fulfill the prophecies concerning a king that were given to Israel, that was also announced. And even more than the references to him being a priest and more than all the references to him being a prophet, his kingship stands out in both the Old and the New Testaments as the central and defining element of his person and his work. And so the passage under consideration that we looked at is Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. And this is when the angel appeared to Mary to inform Mary that she would bear a son, even though she was a virgin. And the angel described to her this child in terms of his throne and his reign and his kingdom. So Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, these are the words of the angel to Mary. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be? And this is verse 34. Since I am a virgin, the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now we're going to look at four aspects of this king and his kingdom. The Old Testament expectation the New Testament fulfillment, and then the present reality, and then the future manifestation. Old Testament expectation, New Testament fulfillment, present reality, and then future manifestation. You kind of see we're taking a chronological approach to the kingship of Jesus, starting first with the Old Testament and going all all the way through to its consummation at the end of time and the end of Scripture. Uh, Old Testament, New Testament, the present reality, and then the future manifestation. Now, I need to give a couple of disclaimers before I jump into these four aspects of the kingship of Jesus, uh, a few things to keep in mind. First of all, this is an enormous subject, and I I mean enormous. This has to do, the kingship of Christ has to do not only with the work of Christ and what he mediates to us, but the nature of God's redemptive plan throughout history, from the garden to eternity future. This touches on doctrines of eschatology, which is the nature of end times events and the timing of end times events. Uh, This deals with what is the nature of the current age, and how does Christ rule, where does Christ rule, whom does Christ rule, and when, or will Christ rule. And there are a lot of subjects that are connected connected to this theme of his kingship, the nature of Old Testament Israel, the nature of the Davidic covenant, the nature of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, there, I can almost think of no, I, I don't know that off the top of my head, I can think of any single theological subject, area of theology that is not in some way connected to the kingship of Jesus, in some way. The nature of scripture, the nature of the trinity, the economic trinity, all of those things, of course, eschatology. And so since it is such an enormous subject, that leads us to a second disclaimer, and that is that you, I'm not going to be able to answer every question in this study, and it is not my intention to. You're going to leave this with probably more questions remaining than I have answers for, at least in this this message. Uh One message cannot possibly bring in the comprehensive teaching of Scripture on the nature of the kingship of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Christ. In fact, I don't think that 20 or 30 or 50 messages could do that. So what I do want us to walk away from this with is an appreciation of the biblical revelation concerning the kingdom of Christ and the centrality of his kingship to his person. A third disclaimer And this is, as I mentioned, this does touch on the doctrine of eschatology. That is the doctrine of the end times events, the timing and the order and the nature of those end times events. And of course, what scripture teaches and how uh, regarding those end times events and how those, how those prophecies need to be interpreted. Um, it is impossible for me or anyone really to discuss the subject of eschatology without bringing certain theological presuppositions to bear. Nobody can do that. Nobody can begin talking about uh, eschatology without, uh, without first dealing with certain theological presuppositions. All of us approach the Old Testament passages and the prophets with certain theological understanding. So I'm going to quickly lay out for you what my theological position is on these issues so that you don't have to spend any time over the course of the next few moments as you're listening to this trying to figure out, am I a premillennialist? Am I an amillennialist? Am I a postmillennialist? Or what is a millennialist? Is a millennialist just somebody who was born or come of age somewhere around the turn of the millennium? All right, I am a premillennialist, a premillennialist. That is the doctrinal statement of Kootenai Community Church, and I am unashamedly a premillennialist. That is to say that I do not believe that God's promises regarding an earthly kingdom, given so clearly in the Old Testament, have been set aside or uh, done away with simply because of the unbelief of the Jewish nation and their rejection of Jesus Christ as their king. That would be something that would be called amillennialism. Nor do I believe that the return of Jesus Christ will come at the end of this present age, which is the millennium. I don't believe that we are in the millennium now. I don't believe that Satan is bound. I don't believe that This is the promises and the blessings of the kingdom that were promised to the nation of Israel. I don't believe that, that we are in the millennium now and that Christ is going to return. I believe that Christ will return prior to a 1,000 year earthly physical kingdom where he will establish his kingdom, the kingdom of David, and sit upon David's throne and he will rule in righteousness over the entire earth with a rod of iron over all the nations just as the Old Testament promises and pro, uh, were stated, and the prophets predicted. That is what I believe. Christ will return. He will set up that kingdom. It will last for a thousand years. Satan will be bound, and at the end of that period of time, there will be rebellion, and then we will usher into the eternal state. So, that is what premillennialism is, and that is what I am—a premillennialist. Uh, I believe that the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus Christ will be a cataclysmic event, not, not a slow and subtle and uh, and 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 over a course of a long period of time happen I, I believe that it will be a cataclysmic event i don't believe that the promises of the old testament or the expectations of the new testament can be fulfilled in the manner that they are described apart from a literal physical kingdom here on earth which will be the reestablished throne of david in the city of jerusalem at the location of modern day israel the old testament promises regarding the first coming of lord jesus were fulfilled literally, just as they were written, and I believe that the promises and the prophecies regarding the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will be fulfilled in the same manner as the promises and prophecies regarding his first coming were fulfilled. I don't believe that the the promises and prophecies regarding his second coming are to be taken spiritually, allegorically, symbolically, or metaphorically, or in any other sense that would undermine the straightforward reading of those texts. So, with those... Disclaimers out of the way. Let's take a look first at the Old Testament expectation. Now the fact that the Jewish Messiah would be the king, or be a king, is one of the clearest and most repeated promises regarding the Messiah in all of the Old Testament. It is the most distinguishing feature of Jewish prophecy regarding the Messiah. And we find it in the earliest biblical revelations concerning that Messiah, we find that he would be a king. And that theme is developed all the way through the Old Testament. The kingdom of David was the foreshadowing of that great kingdom of Christ. David was promised, as part of the covenant that God made with him, that one would come from his loins, his lineage, who would rule over Israel, and he would rule and he would reign forever, and that he would rule over the kingdoms of the world. The Old Testament prophets described that kingdom, the nature of this king, the nations over which this king would rule, the wealth of the kingdom, the expanse of the kingdom, and the timing of the kingdom. It is all the way through the Old Testament. Now, Genesis 49.10 is one of the earliest references to the Messiah being a king. The promise is contained in the blessing that Jacob gave to each of his sons. And when Jacob blessed Judah, he said this in Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Uh, That is a promise that a ruler for Israel would come from the tribe of Judah, and that the scepter shall not depart from Judah; the, the right to rule shall not depart from the tribe of Judah, nor shall the ruler's staff from between Judah's feet, until Shiloh comes, and or until the one to whom it belongs, as the literal translation comes, or to the one, the peaceful one, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, this would be a ruler who would gather together to himself all the peoples and rule over them. Now David was of the tribe of Judah. God chose David to be the king after Saul. To David, God made this promise that he would establish the kingdom uh, of David and that that kingdom would never come to an end. Listen to a couple of passages from Second Samuel 7, verses 10-13. through 13. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that is not a promise that Solomon fulfilled. Uh, Solomon failed to do that, and Solomon failed to be the one who fulfilled that promise. And so we look for one, and, and of course, if Solomon didn't fulfill it, certainly none of those who came after Solomon and ruled over the divided kingdom, none of those kings uh, for Israel or Judah fulfilled those promises. Second uh, Samuel seven sixteen Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And these promises become a, a, a ground for great praise and adoration of God in Psalm 89, where the graces of that covenant to David are enumerated and mentioned. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Psalm 89, 28 and 29, My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him, so I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Psalm 89, 35 to 37, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness of the sky is faithful. Now, in that covenant, God established David's line as the kingly line through whom the Messiah would come. The right to the throne would never be forfeited. It would never be lost, even in sin of the nation, even through their captivity, and even through their eventual dispersion. The right to rule would never be taken from David's house. So what was promised in the Davidic covenant was not a continuing political government, but a continuing line through one which would result in, in David's throne and David, a son of David sitting on that throne. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ who would sit on that throne and he would rule. Now there's no political Davidic kingdom in Israel today, but that's not what was promised to David. See, there's, there's no monarchy in, in, in Jerusalem. There's no active political reign, no active political uh, kingdom currently associated with the line of David. But when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and he sits on his throne in Jerusalem and establishes his kingdom, whose throne will that be? It will be David's throne. It will be one who is a descendant of David who sits upon the throne in Jerusalem. What was promised to David was not a continuing political dynasty forever and ever. What was promised to David was that never, despite the sin of the nation, never would the right to rule be taken away from the descendants of David. No one else could fulfill these promises other than a son of David. Nobody else had the right to rule over the nation of Israel other than a descendant of David. And so that sort of narrows down the messianic line through all of the possibilities to somebody who would come from David. So when Jesus Christ, when that greater son of David rules, he will rule as David's son. He will rule as heir of the kingdom. He will rule as the one who is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David. Other Old Testament prophets predicted that the Messiah would be a king. So we have prophecies related to Jesus' birth, even one well-known, which, one which describes uh, him in, in terms of his kingdom. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, the familiar one that we often hear preached on and quoted and read and put on Hallmark cards at this time of year, Christmas time. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Listen to this. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, how would we, how should we understand that passage? How would Old Testament Jews have understood that passage? They would have understood that p- promise about one who would sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. They would understand that passage as relating to the Old Testament, the, the, the coming Messiah, their expectation of the Messiah. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness forevermore? See, the Jews expected that this child, the one that is described in this passage, would be a king. And he would be on the line of David. He would establish a kingdom. He would run a government. He would sit on David's throne. He would rule it with righteousness and justice. And this rule would last forever. Now, what type of kingdom does that sound like? Does that sound like a spiritual kingdom? Does it sound like any kind of a kingdom that you see here today? No, it does not. But when that king returns and makes his enemies a footstool for his feet, he will establish that very kingdom, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. That is not currently happening right now. The government of this world does not rest upon his shoulders, and that is exactly what Isaiah promised. And he will, uh, and and, there, and his uh, government will increase, and it will be a government of peace, and that government of peace will know no end. That that's not happening now. But it will happen. Isaiah 16.5 says, A throne will even be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. And of course he will, because righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Jeremiah twenty three five and 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Will I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now I ask you this, does Israel dwell securely today? No, they do not. Have we seen this promise of a king and a reign and righteousness done in the land? In what land? What was Jeremiah talking about? In the land of heaven? No, Jeremiah is talking about the land of Israel. Has Judah to this day been saved? No. See, these promises can only be fulfilled by a future kingdom, a coming kingdom. Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen to 17 In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. See, that is the promise again that that right to rule would never be taken away from David. So it's not difficult to understand what the Jews expected. They expected a political king. Because you see this in John chapter 6, when Jesus multiplied bread and fish, and the people came to him to take him by force and make him king. Because they reasoned, hey, a man who can multiply bread and fish in the wilderness and feed multitudes, that's the type of man who can who can reign and rule in the house of David and overthrow the kingdoms. And so they read the passages, which I've just read to you, and many, many more, and they reasoned that the Messiah would come, that he would establish the throne of David, he would set up his kingdom. That's what they were anticipating, a king. So where would the Jews get such an idea? From the very passages which we just read. They did not understand that this would be fulfilled in any kind of a spiritual sense. They didn't understand that these would be fulfilled in any kind of a metaphorical sense, or that we need to allegorize these passages, that they don't really describe this, that describe some spiritual state that exists today. No, not at all. They understood these things to be yet future realities for them, And we understand today that these promises can only be fulfilled in a in a straightforward manner if they are still yet future realities for us as well. What they did not understand, that is the Jews of the Old Testament, was that this one who would sit on David's throne in Jerusalem and rule the nations, that he would first have to come and deal with sin. And before he could be the conquering king, the Messiah, who would rule the world in righteousness, he would be the Lamb of God, the suffering servant, who would give his life as a ransom for many that he would offer a sacrifice as a high priest. He would first suffer to fulfill all righteousness by paying the sin price for his people, and then he would give to his people that righteousness. And so we can say that that king is the Lord our righteousness. This does not mean that now having offered himself as a sacrifice for sins that he's no longer going to rule and reign over the house of David or establish his kingdom, because we don't have to choose between these options. Having once purchased eternal redemption, He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, where he awaits the time until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And then he will return again. And this time, without reference to sin, as Hebrews says, not in order to deal with the sin problem, but he will return again to rule and reign in righteousness, to judge the world in righteousness, and to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies concerning him that have not yet been fulfilled. So that's the Old Testament expectation. Now, the New Testament fulfillment. Let's look at what the New Testament says concerning the fulfillment of these promises. The first thing we notice when we turn to the New Testament is that the birth of Jesus is described in terms of the fulfillment of these passages. He is born King of the Jews. When the Magi came to the King Herod around the time of Jesus' birth, they asked Herod, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Because we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. That's Matthew 2, verse 2. Those men... Those men, the Magi, understood what the sign of the star meant. They understood the times in which they were living and they expected the birth of the great king of the Jews, the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. And then Matthew notes that the birthplace of Jesus was instrumental in the fulfillment of that promise concerning the birth of a king. So quoting Matthew 5 verse 2, Matthew 2 verse 6 says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Bethlehem is where David was born and That's where David lived and long after David was the prophecy of this future king, a ruler over Israel who, like David, would be born in the city of David in Bethlehem, birthplace of David. And now we come to Luke chapter 1 and this is the announcement of the angel to Mary, the the passage that I read to you at the beginning. Here Mary is told that she would bear a child even in her virginity and that this child would be the son of the Most High. In Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, all of that sounds very, very familiar to the Old Testament passages that I read to you earlier. Take a closer look at, what, at some of the details of what the angel said. First, there is this element of detail, uh, this element of deity, that he would be called the Son of the Most High. This angel uh, this child is to be named Jesus, and he would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse thirty-five. The angel answered and said to her, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the re- for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God." This miraculously conceived child would not only be the Son of God, but also the Son of David, for the angel said, "The Lord will give him the throne of his father David." Now both Mary and Joseph were in the lineage of David, so through Mary. Being Jesus's physical mother, Jesus had the right to the throne of David because he was a physical descendant of David through Mary and through Joseph. Though he wasn't a physical descendant of Joseph because he was born virgin-born, Jesus was Joseph's adopted child, and so that gave J, that gave Jesus the legal right as the legal son of Joseph to the throne of David because both David and Mary were descendants of David. Did I say David and Mary? Both Joseph and Mary were descendants. Of David, and both Joseph and Mary then uh, conferred upon Jesus in different manners the right to rule over the house of David and over the throne of David and over the nation, because remember the right to rule was never take, never to be taken, and never to be relinquished from the house of David and so Mary gave Jesus the physical right to sit on that throne Je- Joseph gave Jesus the legal right, and so the prophecies concerning Jesus, and the lineage of David, never ceasing and the right to rule, never departing from the house of David, those are ultimately fulfilled and culminated in the person of Jesus Christ. As the son of David, the physical descendant of David through Mary, He had, and the legal descendant of David through Joseph, he has the right to rule. And he alone, being the Messiah, is the rightful heir to David's throne. Jesus, having died once for sin, he now lives forevermore, never to die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Therefore, when the time is right... He will establish his kingdom. He will rule and reign forever, and his kingdom will never come to an end. His rule will never come to an end because he will never die. And notice the language that was used by the angel. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus was born a king, and at his birth he was proclaimed a king. Jesus also taught as a king, by the way. He taught as one in authority. He taught as one who spoke for God. In some of his parables in which he spoke of a king going away to a far country and returning back and receiving a kingdom, etc., those those parables were intended to portray himself. He was speaking of himself. So he was born as a king. He taught as a king. His disciples regarding regarded him as a king. At his triumphal entry, the crowd of disciples began to shout with a loud voice, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that entire event was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy regarding a king, again, from Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was the presentation of their king. And then remember that Jesus was tried as a king. At his trial, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say, Matthew twenty seven eleven. And Jesus was crucified as a king. Matthew 27.37 And above his head they put up the charge against him, which reads, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now Jesus was mocked as a king. Matthew 27.29 After twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Matthew 27.42 says, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. And that, of course, records the the mocking voices among the crowd that passed by him while he was being crucified. They said, he's the King of the Jews. Let him come down off the cross and we'll believe in him. He was mocked as a King. And then Jesus was resurrected as a King. On the day of Pentecost, the apostle Paul, uh, Peter quoted a prophecy from the resurrection on the resurrection of Jesus from Psalm 16, where David was speaking of his confidence that God would not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. And on that day, Peter quoted Psalm 16 and said, brethren, Uh, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And that's Acts 2, uh, 29 to 32. So Peter said David wasn't speaking of himself, because David's still dead. But David was speaking of the Messiah who would come after him. That he, that is that Holy One, would not suffer decay. That Holy One would not be abandoned to the grave. And so David foresaw that God would resurrect his Messiah, his son, from the grave. And seat him on David's throne. And since Jesus is that one, he is that king. And therefore God must raise him up, and Jesus is that resurrected king. So he was born as a king, he taught as a king, he was worshipped as a king, he was tried as a king, crucified as a king, mocked as a king, and resurrected as a king. Notice the kingship of Jesus is all the way through his person and work. So that's the New Testament expectation, and, and or sorry, the New Testament uh, uh, fulfillment and teaching regarding kingship of Jesus, and only a small portion of it, by the way. Third, this present reality. What is What about this present reality? If Jesus is a king, then where is his kingdom? Because it certainly does not appear as if the curse has been lifted and prosperity is spreading to everybody and he is ruling from Jerusalem and all the nations are subject to him. But in fact, as we see, the vast majority of his creation is in rebellion to him. And the establishment of his earthly kingdom is yet a future reality. Right now he sits at the right hand of the father. He will there, he will be there until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And though he is sovereign and though he has been given all power and all authority and all majesty, the world is still in rebellion to him. So right now, he rules and reigns over his church. Right now, he rules and reigns in the hearts of his sheep and of his people. He is sovereign over all things. He is working all things after the counsel of his own will. But, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we do not yet see all things in subjection to him. See, that is yet a future reality. We have no reason to believe that God's plan to establish a kingdom and set over it the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been somehow abrogated or changed. This current age, this current condition in which we live, is not that kingdom. And that kingdom has not been abrogated. It's not been changed. It is yet a future reality. And so we are waiting. And while we are waiting, we're called to preach the gospel, to occupy until he comes. We're called to faithfulness and fidelity, to boldness, to to protect and defend the truth, to advance the truth. We're called to be courageous and convicted. We're called to preach the gospel to make disciples of all the nations to bring the gospel to every corner of this creation to call all men to repentance and faith in the coming king and while we wait we as kingdom subjects are to demonstrate to a sinful and rebellious world what kingdom living looks like how is it that men who are under the authority of king jesus how do they treat their wives and raise their kids and spend their money and share their faith and do their job and provide for their families, and serve other people in the church. How do they do this? That is what we are to demonstrate. How is it that women who live under the authority of King Jesus, how is it that they love and respect their husbands, and sacrifice for their kids, and honor authority, and serve others, and be a good helpmate? How is it that children who have bowed the knee to the authority of King Jesus, respect and honor their parents, and obey their parents, and respect and honor authority, and live holy and pure lives? That is what we are to demonstrate in the here and now. We are to show the life-transforming reality of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, not only the spiritual kingdom, but eventually that future kingdom, that future hope that we have, we are to show that to this rebellious kingdom of darkness in which we live. And so we are his subjects. We are those who have bowed the knee to King Jesus. We are subjects of another kingdom, of another world. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from there, we eagerly await our King. And we are to call men and women to turn from the darkness and embrace the king of righteousness. We are to call men and women to repentance because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, having raised Jesus Christ, the king, the judge, from the dead. So when he returns, what will it look like? Well, let's look now forth at that future manifestation. In the future, this kingdom will be realized. And it will come about not by our doing. Isaiah says it is the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will accomplish this the establishment of the kingdom will not come about because of our preaching of the gospel or our christianizing of society it will be a cataclysmic event in daniel chapter 2 nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he gave the history of all the kingdoms it is the image of the statue that was made up of different elements the the head of gold the chest of silver the the abdomen of uh what was it bronze and then iron and then iron mixed with clay, uh, clay those five elements and the final part of the dream is the stone which is not cut out of hands and is, is not of human making It is not of human endeavor, which strikes the feet of the statue and destroys all those kingdoms. That is the imagery of judgment. And Daniel interpreted the dream in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. And here's what Daniel said. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. It will itself endure forever Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Daniel had a vision of this kingdom being handed to the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. At the end of the book of Revelation describes that kingdom, Revelation 19, and I saw, verse 11, and I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That kingdom is established in Revelation chapter 20. Satan is bound. He establishes a kingdom which lasts for a thousand years. The kingdom will be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament expectation and anticipation. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. It will be a kingdom of righteousness and peace and justice. For justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. Jerusalem would be the center of the world. There will be no idolatry. There will be no false gods. Jesus Christ will be worshipped by the entire world. And at the end of that resurrection, there will be a final judgment. And the world as it is now will be dissolved. It will melt with a fervent heat. He will recreate a new heavens and a new earth. And all the righteous will enter into that new and glorious creation in eternal and resurrected bodies to reign with Jesus Christ forever and ever. As this, he is the Son of God, and the son of David, his rule and his kingdom and his dominion will never cease, for he is that king. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus Christ is the perfect mediator in all of those offices. As the prophet, he perfectly mediates the word of God to us. As his, as, a, as the priest, he perfectly mediates a sacrifice for us on our behalf, representing us before the Father. And as a king, he perfectly rules over his people, and will establish a perfect kingdom in the age to come. These three offices describe the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see these three offices at play all the way through redemptive history. Let me let me tie these three together for you throughout redemptive history. At creation, prior to the fall, Adam functioned as a prophet in that he had a true knowledge of God and he always spoke and believed what was true of God. He was a priest in that he was able to approach God and to speak to God face to face. And he knew, Adam knew, that, that unbroken you know, un, un, what unbroken fellowship with God was like. And he was a king in that he was given dominion over all of creation to exercise that dominion over creation, including the animals. Well, Adam failed, and he fell. And the fall of man in Adam changed everything. After sin, men no longer functioned as prophets because we believed and spoke false things concerning God. We no longer had access to God because sin had cut us off from his presence. Men no longer had uh, or had any enjoyed any kind of a priestly privilege at all. And instead of ruling over creation as kings, we became subject to this curse, um, vexed and toiling under it. And now we fight the harshness of this creation, suffering under the curse of thorns and thistles and death and disease. And then in the establishment of the theocratic kingdom of Israel, we saw some of these offices and functions uh, we saw them again in a different light, and we saw them start to uh, um, a partial recovery of these things. In the nation of Israel, in that earthly kingdom, there was a, a recovery of these three roles. Israel had kings, they had prophets, and they had priests. And from time to time, different godly men occupied those different offices, and we got glimpses of how those offices functioned and how those godly men functioned as mediators in those different realms. And their mediatorial work was a foreshadowing of the great mediatorial work where that one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, would do all of the work of prophet, priests, and kings. But there were wicked kings, there were false prophets, there were dishonest priests, and those men who fulfilled those roles dishonored not only the office itself, but also the God who put them there. But then in Christ, in the coming of Jesus Christ, we, for the first time, have the fulfillment of all of his roles. He is the perfect prophet who fully declares the word of God. He is the perfect priest who perfectly offers a perfect sacrifice on behalf of his people and he is the true and rightful king of the universe who will reign forever with a scepter of righteousness and a rod of iron in the new heavens and the new earth. And then there is also a sense in which we are called to mimic the Lord Jesus Christ in these areas. We as his redeemed people are to function as prophets in that we speak right and proper and true things about God, communicating the word of God to others. We are also to function as priests since we are a royal priesthood, a new priesthood, Uh, he has made us a kingdom of priests before his God, and that we have now access to God directly because of the sacrifice that Christ has made, we may boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in time of need. And then we are to function as kings in the coming age. For we are told in the book of Revelation, verse chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus said, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And the promise is fulfilled in Revelation 22 verse 5 where it is said, There will no longer be any night and they will not have any need of a light or of a lamp nor of a light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. We are prophets, priests, and kings. We function in each of these roles because we have a Savior who is a prophet and a priest and a king. We will reign with him forever and ever. Where Adam failed, Christ has succeeded. He has done perfectly what we could never do and what Adam most certainly never did. We share in the blessings and the benefits that Christ has secured for his own people. Soli Deo Gloria.